Let's pray before we open the word together this morning. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that you've given us your word. It's upon your word and your word alone that we want to stand. So we pray that you would speak to our hearts. We pray that you would speak to our minds. We pray that we would know the freedom that we have in Christ, our Savior. We pray that he would teach us as our great teacher today. And that the Spirit, as the great applier of the Word, would apply the truth to our hearts and our souls. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen. Romans chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, this is the holy and errant Word of God. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Amen. Over the years, uh, I have done a lot of premarital counseling with a lot of couples. And one of the more interesting sessions in most of the premarital counseling series that I go through with a couple is when... I talk to them about some of the early conflicts that often happen early in marriage. And one of the surprises to them is when I ask them this question, I say, whose family are you going to spend Christmas with? I ask that question because about 22 years ago, I was sitting next to Leah on a couch, and we were in premarital bliss. And a pastor sat in front of us and rudely interrupted that. He asked and he said, Jason, who will you spend Christmas with? Whose family? Now, I was wise enough at the time to answer, well, of course, Lee and I will talk about this and we'll agree together where we go. But he was a seasoned pastor and had been around the block a few times. So he asked a follow-up. He said, Jason, what if Leah's family wants you to come to their house for Christmas? Or let's say that Leah says she really thinks it's important that the two of you just celebrate Christmas together at home alone, and she really is convinced that you should go nowhere. But your mom asks you to come home for Christmas. And I said, without hesitation, we would go to my mom's house. <laughs> and Leah began to inch to the other side of the couch away from me as we were sitting there. 
That pastor just kind of let the silence in the room come to bear upon my young soul for what felt like eternity. And then he said, I think we have something to talk about. Aren't family celebrations meant to bring us together? Couples are often surprised that Christmas celebrations become sources of conflict. Aren't family celebrations supposed to bring us together? Baptism. Need I say much more? Too often it is simply the church family celebration which causes conflict. John Rabbi Duncan, a historic Scottish Presbyterian pastor of a former generation, once said this. He said, I am a Christian next to Catholic, not meaning Roman Catholic, but meaning belonging to the universal church. He said, I am first a Christian next to Catholic, then a Calvinist, fourth a Pado-Baptist, meaning believing in infant baptism or, as I will say, covenantal baptism. And finally, he says, I'm a Presbyterian. That's putting the right things in the right order. He is a Christian first. He's a member of the universal church second. And then everything else follows. Everything else follows. But all of it is important that follows. I want to begin with looking at what is a sacrament this morning, and then secondly, what is baptism? And after that, I'll try and answer just a few of kind of the routine questions that come up as people find what we do here at URC a little foreign or a little strange in our infant baptisms or what I would term covenantal baptisms. It seems uh, foreign and strange to many of us. Uh, I understand that. Uh, I, when I came to Saving Faith, and for many years uh, as a Christian, did not believe that the, the Scriptures taught covenantal baptism. And yet now I find it to be one of the most beautiful and one of the most lovely doctrines in the Bible, in my opinion. But before we get there, first, what is the sacrament? And second, what is baptism? We're in the middle of a sermon series on worship, and as we said in previous weeks, our worship is to be shaped, and it's to be formed, and it's to be centered upon the Word of God. It's a worship service that is filled with the Word. We want to do everything in our worship service according to the Word of God, and we don't want anything in our worship services that is contrary to the Word of God. It is the Word of God that God has chosen to use. It's His means for converting the lost. It's His means for building up the saints in faith. It is what He uses, so it's what we rely upon. It's what we depend upon. It's what we look to. We don't seek to craft our services around humor or lights or blowing and going music or whatever else it may be. It's the Word of God that they need to be centered upon. And so, as we said in previous weeks, we read the Word and we preach the Word and we sing the Word and we pray the Word and we confess the Word and we see the Word. What does that mean that we see the Word? 
Well, we see the word in the sacraments, in baptism, in the Lord's table. What we hear by the word, we see in baptism, in the Lord's table. As Augustine once said, the sacraments are the visible word. Let's take a look, closer look at that this morning, and I think what would be helpful as we're tackling these two questions, what is a sacrament and what is baptism, is that as we think about what is a sacrament is to look here at Romans 4, verses 11 and 12. That, that will help to wrap our minds around what actually is a sacrament. Now, Paul here is not addressing baptism. He's not addressing the Lord's table, the two sacraments of the Christian church, but he is addressing a sacrament of the Old Testament, and he uses language that helps you and I to understand what defines a sacrament. If we look at the beginning of Romans 4, you can see there that Paul has made it clear in verse 3. He says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is, Abraham had faith, and by that faith he was declared righteous before God. This is the doctrine of justification. As Paul says in verse 9, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Abraham was a sinner. He was a sinner through and through. And yet what Paul says here is that he was declared righteous. Why? Not because Abraham did the right things. Not because he went through the right motions. But he was declared righteous by faith. He was justified by faith. In the courtroom of God, his, his sins were no longer accounted to him. But rather, he now stood before the throne of God, declared righteous, declared holy before God by faith, by faith. This is what we all need, and that is Paul's concern. Because we all stand condemned before the throne of God. You are born into this world standing condemned before the throne of God. You are a sinner and you sin. And the only way to be justified, Paul is stating, is by faith. Faith is the only path one may set their feet upon, and that is the only path that takes one to heaven and grants them the gift of eternal peace with God. From the Garden of Eden until the end of days, this has been, is, and will be the only way to God, the road of faith. You can't be saved any other way. And Paul is combating those that would teach something different here in Romans 4. Some were promoting the heresy that Abraham was not just justified by faith, but he was justified by faith and by circumcision. That these two things together contributed to his being declared righteous. And so Paul will address this. He will address it even in more detail in Galatians. There's something that seems to be in the human mind 
that seems to be in the human heart, that seems to be in human fallen flesh, that we want to add to justification by faith alone. We gravitate towards it. We want to add some work. We want to add some thing. It is a pernicious evil that is constant in the history of the church. And so Paul is speaking to them and to us equally. As he says this in verse 11, he says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. But his circumcision didn't save him. As Paul points out in verses 9 and 10, Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised. The act of circumcision did not save him then why, Paul? Why was Abraham commanded to be circumcised? And why did God, as we read in Genesis 17 this morning, why did God command Abram to circumcise his children and those children circumcise their children and children after children after children for generation upon generation? Why? Well, the language Paul uses here is all important. Notice what he says about circumcision. He says, circumcision was a seal, in verse 11, a seal of the righteousness that he, meaning Abraham, a seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And the wording is all important. Circumcision is not a seal of Abraham's subjective expression of faith. It was not a seal of his response to the gospel. Paul's clear. It was a seal of the righteousness that was received by faith. Let me say that again. It was a seal of the righteousness that was received by faith. So let's try to make that a little more clear. Circumcision, the sacrament of the Old Testament, was not primarily a seal of Abraham's subjective faith, but it was a seal to faith. It was a seal of the righteousness that he received, a seal of the truth that he embraced. To say it another way, circumcision was primarily a sign and seal of the faith, of the promise of God, not Abraham's subjective experience of faith. So let's see if we can work that out a little more thoroughly because it's important. It's important because God's covenantal signs are throughout Scripture. You think of when Noah, and he makes his promise to Noah and a covenant with Noah and with the world that he wouldn't flood again. He puts a sign of the rainbow in the sky. Or you think of the Passover, or you think of the Sabbath, or you think of circumcision here, or you think of the New Testament baptism or the Lord's Supper. So let's go back to circumcision. In Genesis 12, we had God calling Abram out of the earth of the Chaldees, and Abraham sets out in faith. In Genesis 15, we have God entering into a covenant with Abraham. And in that covenant, He makes promises to Abraham. 
He says to Abraham that he shall multiply his offspring, that they shall be like the stars in the sky, like the grains of sand upon the beach. He says that he shall give him a land to inherit. He says that he shall be his God, that he will bless those who bless him, that he will curse those who curse him. And then ultimately, God says that there will be this promised seed that comes forth from Abraham, a seed that shall bless all of the nations. This is the promise. But then we get to Genesis 17, what we read this morning. And it seems odd, because God has just promised things in Genesis 15, and God cannot lie. He is not like the shifting shadows due to change, as James says. When God promises something, He fulfills it. He can't change. And so these promises that He made to Abraham, they are absolutely guaranteed. And yet, we have Genesis 17, where God gives Abraham a sign and a seal, to use Paul's language, of the covenant that He has made with him sign and that seal being circumcision. Genesis 17.10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. A sign and a seal of God's covenant. A sign and a seal of God's promises. What was circumcision a sign of? It was a sign of the need to be cut off from the first Adam, to be cut off from this fallen, weak, sinful flesh. And it's a sign of God's provision for it. Jeremiah 4 4 Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. It pointed to the need to be regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit to be born again, which God provided for all people. Paul points this out in Romans 2, 28 and 29, where he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, the spirit, not by the letter. The physical sign of circumcision That outward sign pointed to the inward reality of God's promises realized. And notice that it was a sign that was done on the male reproductive organ for reason. Because it was Adam that fell. And all descending from Adam by ordinary generation, as the catechism says. That means everybody but Christ fell with him and sinned with him in that first fall. So everyone is born into this world fallen as a seed of Adam. But it also points to the promise of God. Because what did God promise in Genesis 3.15? That there would be a seed of the woman, a descendant from the woman, one born of the flesh, who would crush the head of the serpent. And then He promised to Abraham that a seed from him shall come forth and bless all of the nations, the same seed. 
And then later we'll learn from David that the covenant with David, that God promises that a seed from David, a descendant from David, shall sit upon the throne forever. So in their flesh, the Israelite people had for all of their days this sign that you need to die to that old man. You need to be cut off from that first Adam. You need to be cut off from your flesh. And you need to trust in the promise of God, the Savior who is to come, the one who will be born. And they would see this in their flesh day after day after day. That God had promised to save them. It was a sign of this. But as Paul says, it was even more than that. It was also a seal of God's covenant promises. If you think of ancient times and if someone was to write a letter. So if John Anderson, uh, this highly respectable, honorable man, was to write a letter to me. And I wanted to make sure it wasn't a counterfeit. Because one of you could be taking John's name up and writing for him. Well, John would write a letter, and what would he do? He would roll it up in that scroll, and then he would melt some wax on it, and then he would take his signet ring, because John has some bling, and he would put his stamp, he would put his seal upon that document, so that when I received it, I would know this is John. This is from John. This belongs to John. His imprimatur is upon it. The sacraments are not just bare signs. They're seals. That's what Paul says. They're seals. That they impress the truth of God's promises upon us. It's not just that God has promised a Savior. It's not just that there is a Savior. He's my Savior, sealed to me. It's not just that blood was shed. It's not just that atonement was made. It's not just that forgiveness is possible. It is sealed to me through the sacraments that that forgiveness is mine. That bloodshed is mine. That forgiveness is mine. As tangible and as real as the water is, as tangible and real as the cup and the bread is, so are these promises of God to me. They're mine. He sealed it to me. And if you are in Christ, He has sealed it to you in the sacraments. Now, why all this talk about circumcision? I thought this was a sermon about baptism. Well, in the Old Testament, the primary signs and seals, sacraments of God's covenantal promises were circumcision and Passover. In the New Testament, after the coming of Christ, they are baptism and the Lord's table. Baptism functions in the New Covenant time period, this side of Christ's coming, in an analogous way that circumcision did in the Old Covenant time period. And yet, before we go there... I want to pause for a second. So I don't want us to miss this. We get so caught up in the disagreements that we miss the incredible blessing that the sacraments are. They're a gift. They're a gift of the Lord to you, to me. What we hear 
What we hear by the word that is read and by the word that is preached, we are now made to see. The word is made visible. The question is why? Why does God go to this end? Why would God do this? He, he promised in His own name. So that would be sufficient, one would think. And yet God gives these tangible, physical signs and seals to engage our senses. Why? I think John Calvin has said it better than any. And he said this, he said, as our faith is slight and feeble, unless it be propped up on all sides and sustained by every means, it trembles, wavers, totters, and at last gives way. Hear our merciful Lord according to His infinite kindness. So tempers Himself to our capacity that since we are creatures who always creep on the ground, cleave to the flesh, and do not think about or even conceive of anything spiritual, He condescends to lead us to Himself even by these earthly elements and to set before us in the flesh a mirror of spiritual blessings. Isn't that pretty? It's a kindness of our God. It's a condescension on his part where he says, I know your faith is weak. I know it is weak. I know it's fragile. I know that it's tottering. I know that you desire something you can touch and feel and taste and smell. So I'm going to give it to you. Just as Calvin says to help prop up your faith. If I was to tell one of my kids, when you finish this chore, I'm going to give you a little bit of money. If they then replied to me, well, Dad, I want to see your wallet and I want you to put $5 out on the table before I do the chore. I'd say, you, you have my word. Probably not what I would say. Probably honestly what I would say is do the chore. You're getting no money. Uh, but God is a more tender father. He meets us where we are at even before we ask. Even before we ask. And just in kindness gives us something that we can see. He's made a promise. He doesn't have to, but He chooses to in kindness and mercy and grace. I have a very tender father. So our second question, what is baptism then? Well, it's a sign and a seal of the covenantal promises of God. When we turn to the New Testament, we no longer find circumcision mandated. Why? Because it's been fulfilled. So Paul tells us in Colossians 2.11 that Christ was circumcised in His crucifixion upon the cross. But God continues to prop up our faith. And so Christ commanded us to observe sacraments, to observe the Lord's table, and to observe baptism. As circumcision was the sacrament signifying and sealing the promises of God to an individual upon their entrance into the covenant community in the old covenant, 
So baptism is the sacrament of initiation signifying and sealing the covenant promises of God to individuals in the new covenant. Both symbolize the need for being cut off from the first Adam and our flesh. The need for our hearts to be made new by pouring out of the Holy Spirit. An outward sign denoting an inward grace. The promise that God has provided. Baptism, like circumcision, distinguishes the people of God from the world. It represents our communion with God, our identification with Him, and even more importantly, His identification with us. We're in union with Him. We're engaged to serve and bear His name. In many ways, baptism is a naming ceremony. We're taking on the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, being identified with this God in service. What was found in seed form and circumcision is found in flower form in baptism. But now the sacrament of initiation into the covenant people of God is unbloody. We don't shed blood because it's already been shed. signifies and seals, as Sinclair Ferguson said, the work of Christ, crucified and resurrected in the communion with God, which is ours through faith, an unbloody sign and seal of God's great promises to us, sealed to us. So let me try to answer a few questions that arise from primarily infant baptism or pedo-baptism. Before I do so, let me be clear that I and the elders here at URC only want you to be convinced by the Scriptures. I have no desire for anyone here to believe what I believe about baptism or what the elders of this church believe about baptism, apart from you being convinced by the Scriptures. The Lord is Lord of the conscience. He is to dominate your conscience by His Word. And so I want you to be convinced by the Word, wherever you stand on this issue. Having said that, there are good Christian people who have come to different conclusions about the secondary doctrine throughout the history of the church. All my family members, except my wife, and hopefully my kids, uh, don't believe the Scriptures teach covenantal baptism or infant baptism. Some of my best friends in pastoral ministry do not believe the Scriptures teach this. And they are no less holy, they are no less faithful, they are no less mature in Christ than I am. In fact, many of them make my Christian walk look like a crawl compared to theirs. But having said that, URC is a member church in the Presbyterian Church in America. We're a confessional church that holds to the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms. And the leadership of this church is committed to what has historically been taught and practiced in Reformed and Presbyterian denominations regarding baptism. As a member of URC and a member of the Presbyterian Church in America, you don't have to believe this. 
Presbyterianism is actually very inclusive compared to many other denominations out there. You can be a member here without holding to our particular view of baptism. You can come to the table here without holding to particular parts of what we believe about baptism. Some of our best, some of our most faithful and faith-filled members of URC do not believe the Scriptures teach covenantal baptism. In fact, we made it an official policy last year as a church that if a family, after meeting with a couple of elders, was still convinced that Baptism by immersion was the only mode for baptism, and their children hadn't been baptized, and we would conduct an immersion baptism service each summer upon request after their children had made profession of faith and been examined by the elders. But even having said that, we're not going to shy away from being clear about what we believe and why we believe it, because I believe this is what the Scriptures teach. I was with Al Mohler this past week at our General Assembly, and he said to a group of us, he said, I love when Presbyterian churches act like Presbyterian churches. That from the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I agree. I would say the same thing about Baptist churches. Teach what you're convinced the Scriptures teach. So all of that as an introduction. Five things this morning. I can't answer all of the common questions, but five this morning that routinely come up. First, by baptizing children, do we believe, do you believe they are saved by that baptism? The answer is categorically no. Just as Abraham was not saved by circumcision, and neither was Isaac, and surely neither was Ishmael, baptism does not save in that sense. As circumcision didn't cause faith, so baptism does not cause faith. As circumcision does not cause regeneration, so baptism does not cause regeneration. As we saw from Romans 4, we are saved by faith alone. And we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Baptism is not magical, causing miraculous things. Neither is it sentimental, simply a touching moment in the service for all of us to to laugh and uh, stare at children as they look cute up here. Neither is it simply a dedication, a kind of family celebration. Rather, it's an ordinance instituted by God for His church to signify and seal His covenant promises to His people to prop up our faith. Again, we're not making a commentary when we baptize a child about whether they are or they are not members of the invisible church. That is the church that shall be gathered in heaven on that last day. We hope so. We expect they will be. We believe that's the normative way that God works. But we're making no commentary upon that. We are making a commentary that they belong to the visible church. That they're here. That they're among us. And as members of the visible church, they received the sign. This has always been the case. Isaac received the sign. Jacob received the sign. Moses received the sign. Paul received the sign. Second, do you believe in believer's baptism? Wholeheartedly. 
I hold fastly to believer's baptism. This church holds fastly to believer's baptism. If an adult comes to saving faith and they were not baptized as a child because either they weren't raised in the church or because that wasn't the practice of their church growing up, then immediately upon profession of faith, as they become a member of the church and make that public declaration, they are baptized. It's a mark. It's a sign of entrance into the covenant community. Third, but why give children this sign if they can't yet express faith? But first, be careful about the assumption that's often in that question. We've got to be careful saying that young children can't have faith. Because it does violence to the Scriptures. Because what do you do with John the Baptist in his mother's womb? What do you do with Christ in Mary's womb? If even the youngest can't have faith, God is the giver of the gift of faith. He can give it where He desires, wherever He desires. So forth, why give this sign and seal to children before they express faith then? Because they're members of the covenant family of God. They're members of the covenant community. It is the same covenant with the same promises from the beginning of Scripture to the end. Circumcision, though belonging to the old covenant, was a sign and seal of the overarching covenant of Scripture, the covenant of grace. Baptism is simply the sign and seal of initiation into the covenant people of God in the new covenant age of the covenant of grace. As children receive the sign and seal in the old covenant, so they are to receive the sign and seal in the new covenant. As children were considered part of the covenant community in the old covenant, so they are to be considered part of the covenant community in the new covenant. As God's plan of salvation was the same in the old covenant, so it's the same in the new covenant. It is one covenant of grace that overarches the entire scriptures. One plan of salvation, one God who does not change, one way of salvation, one church, one faith. God has not changed. If things had changed, if children received it then, but they should not receive it now, then the change would be with God, and He would have told us. The efficacy, the benefits are not necessarily tied to the moment that the child receives baptism. All that is signified, we pray, will be sealed unto them later in life. Yet, it is always to mark them. Fifth, but there is no New Testament examples of a child being baptized. So, where is your proof? If I can gently push back on that question, I think the burden of proof falls on the other side of the equation. Because the fundamental question is whether children are still members of the covenant community. We all believe in believer's baptism. The question is, what do you do with children that are raised in a covenant family, in a Christian home? 
If as if has been the case since the beginning of time that children are part of the covenant community, then they should receive the sign of that community. If the answer is no, then that would be a monumental change in the way that God works. But the change would be there. And so the proof must be there. Of course, there is no example in the New Testament, in the Gospels or Acts, the only places that we have baptism in the New Testament. Of course, there are no examples of a child being baptized. Because there was no child yet raised in a Christian home. This was the beginning of the church. We all believe in believers' baptism, but what of covenant children? Is there still such a thing as covenant children? I think the New Testament is clear about this. Instead of excluding children from the covenant community, the New Testament seems to underscore their inclusion in the church. We could go to various passages, but significantly is Acts 2, verses 38 and 39. Peter is there at Pentecost. This is the day that the Spirit is being poured out upon the church, that the church is being inaugurated in the world. And on that very day, this is the moment. We're moving from old covenant to new covenant when it's coming to its full fruition, when it's being realized. If there's a change, children are no longer part of the, old, are no longer part of the covenant community. It's here you would expect something. And this is what Peter says. He says, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children. Children are considered part of the covenant community. Or you might think of Ephesians and Colossians. You think of those two letters where Paul writes to the churches in Ephesus and Colossae, and he begins the letter, and he says, as an address in those letters, to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Colossae. And then in each of those letters, we have at the end what are called the household passages, where he addresses fathers, he addresses wives, he addresses husbands, he addresses wives, and he addresses children. He considers them part of the covenant community so much so that he addresses them to obey their parents in the Lord. Or you think of Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 7 where he says that a child of one believing parent is holy, sanctified. Now, he's not speaking of subjective holiness. He's not making a commentary upon whether that child is justified. He's not doing that in Colossians or Ephesians either. But what he's saying is they are set apart they're holy, set apart, they're distinct, they're different. In what way? In that they have this. They have all the blessings of this. I think about it often with my kids. They uh, play with a neighborhood child across the street, and her parents are not Christians. They don't pray for her. They don't read the Bible with her. They don't bring her to church. My children have all the blessing of this. They gather together week in and week out with you. And they hear the word read, and they hear the word preached, and they hear the word sung, and they hear the word prayed, and they see the word. 
and they are being prayed for by you as I pray for your children. They have the example of faith laid before them. They have blessing upon blessing upon blessing. They're distinct. They're different. And we all treat them as such. We encourage them to pray. We all encourage our children to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. We instruct them to sing. Why? Because God is the father of my family and they belong to my family. They have blessings that others do not enjoy. And yet it's not enough. It's not enough for them to be justified. They must believe. They must have faith. Because salvation only comes by faith. But they have this added benefit. They've been baptized. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, for the rest of their lives, their baptism will call out to them. They've been signified, the promises of God. The promises of God have been signified to them. They are marked with it. And for the rest of their lives, their baptism will call out to them, believe, 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 believe. You had all these blessings. Your children in this room, it's not enough that you've been baptized. Your baptism says to you, believe, believe, believe. Place your faith in Christ, and you shall be justified. And as our children do, maybe immediately, maybe three years down the road, maybe 20 years down the road, maybe 50 years down the road, all the promises of God that were signified to them in baptism are now sealed to them. All those promises are theirs forever. There's so many other questions, I know. I'd love to tackle them all. I can't this morning because we have to stop and do a few baptisms. I just want to end with this, though. Regardless of where you stand on the issue of baptism, should children be baptized or not? We all agree on believer's baptism. All agree. Regardless of whether you think children raised in a Christian family are part of the covenant community or whether they're not, we shouldn't allow the things that, that cause disagreement to dominate. It shouldn't be where our minds run when we think on baptism. Where our minds should run is thinking about the great mercy, the great kindness, the goodness of our God. That He would give us such a gift. And it should lead us to delight more and more in this God. That is this kind. That is this condescending. That He wants to prop up your faith on every side. That you might walk in faith and faithfulness to Him. And delight in Him more and more. 
That is a God worth serving. That is a God worth uniting ourselves around. God who makes covenantal promises and keeps them. And that's what baptism declares to us more than anything else. I am your covenant-keeping God. I promise. And I fulfill my promises. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that you are a God of promises. We thank you that you enter into covenant to save a people for yourself. And it's not a result of works so that we have no room to boast. It's wholly a gift from your hands. We pray that we would be a people that delight more in the good gifts that you have given to us. We find that we are less gripped by disagreement and more gripped with the beauty of our Savior. And yet, that we would stand firmly as we are convinced and convicted by your word, not shying away from what we believe is truth how we want to encourage one another to pursue truth and to stand firmly in Christ. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.